welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. This is Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California, coming at you. And as always, I'm joined by Bob Bazanko. And uh, once again, happy to be here and want to thank everybody out there who listens and watches. And as always, ask uh, you to share the stuff we're doing, to uh, tell your friends about it, put it up on, uh, retweet it, put it up on Facebook, wherever there's social media. If you know anybody who has a podcast or a a radio show who's looking for content or looking for people to talk to, tell them about us. But we, we really appreciate this. Uh, you are uh, our marketing and PR department. So anything you can do to let people know about this is going to be really uh, highly appreciated. We have a great guest on. We have another one today, a fantastic guest. And we're bringing you stuff, I think, that, that you're not going to get elsewhere. So um, at the very least, you know, please the share, hit the share icon on whatever social media you're on and and if you have a, a few extra bucks uh please check out our patreon at patreon.com backslash green red podcast uh we have a small but mighty patreon uh support crew that we have called the uh oh, i'm blanking on the name bob m19 m19 m16 m19 the m19 brigade uh and or you can go to our website green and red podcast.org and hit the support button and make a one-time donation um, today, we're going to be talking about politics in graphic novels and comic books. Uh, some are descriptions of actual facts, like Marjane Satrapi's Persopolis. Uh, some are fantastical versions of events, like Art Spiegelman's Mouse. And some are speculative fiction of a dystopian world, like Alan Moore's Watchmen, Envy for Vendetta. But also the work of today's guest, which is Brian Wood. Uh, Brian is, the, is a comic book writer, illustrator, and creator author, TV writer, video game designer. He's the creator of uh, DMZ, which is actually going to be a mini-series coming out soon on HBO Max. Uh, he's also the creator of The Massive, Channel Zero, which we'll be talking about in, uh, uh, in depth on this episode, and other titles like Northlander, Starve, Rebels. Um, and then he's also the writer on titles that many of you may recognize, like Conan the Barbarian, The X-Men, Star Wars, and Aliens. Uh, welcome to Green and Red, Brian. Hey, thank you. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yep. As a as a lifelong comic fan, I'm excited to be doing this episode today, and it's merging my political world and and my uh, childhood uh, hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So you've produced a good bit of uh, creative art depicting some interesting points of view. Uh, in you know, for the for the Green and Red audience, definitely from a, a sort of like left point of view. Uh, maybe we can start off with the first question is where, where do you get the inspiration? Like why, why have you decided to kind of, why have you decided to create titles with this perspective? Um, well, why I decided to, it kind of sort of, it happened gradually and in a very organic way until I sort of decided this was going to be my identity in the comics world. And then I actively sort of cultivated a body of work that, was that is political that has social themes you know that is i opted not to go the commercial route 
and decided to go this <laughs> this route instead, um, which uh, which worked out. I'm I'm happy I, I I did it that way, but I I mean it's equal parts sort of seeing a lack of it in the marketplace at the time, um, being inspired in my own, like in my own pers personal life, I read constantly. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of history. I can probably safely say I get all my ideas from, from history books and sort of wanting to, to explore stuff that I get excited about and want to comment on and want to get other people excited about it. Um, in some cases to communicate a specific point of view or offer like a counterbalance to something else. So, I mean, I'm speaking very broad, broadly because I've written a lot of different stuff for a lot of different reasons. Um, that's kind of where it, uh, again, broad, broadly where, where it comes from. You know, we're in the, here in 2021 and I believe you've been producing work since the mid to late nineties. So like the last 25 years. So we're in the midst of a number of crises here in uh, 2021, a pandemic, uh, uh, political and economic crisis, and as well as the climate crisis. And so some of the work that you've made, I'm thinking about DMZ and I'm thinking about uh, the massive, you know, is it seems like your work, these titles that you've produced have somewhat reflected what's going on. And so I, I just wonder if you would comment on that, if you like how how what's going on now is reflected in some of the work you've done over the last 25 years. Yeah, it's it's um, D, DMZ in particular is kind of a funny case because um, so that was conceived of um, before the it was after 9-11 and before the invasion of, of Iraq. And I was reading a lot of books about embedded journal journalists, like accounts of the first Gulf, Gulf War and sort of how the, you know, that was kind of like the beginning of the embedded journal journalists, at least in uh, America. And I sort of, I mean, a lot of what I do is I sort of look at where things, things are now and then just like, like game it out in my own head. Like, all right, this is what's happening now. If this happens and then this happens, and then this happens, where are we, you know? Um, and that's what I did with, with DMZ. And it's like, it was definitely fanciful. And I had to frame it in a um, action adventure con con context in order to get a, pu a publisher, <laughs> you know? But it was, I really sort of, I believed in the power of the press and I sort of, understood that under some extreme situation there could definitely be a division in in this country but it, it's it was like a science fiction book like even then even at the beginning of the iraq war i didn't really believe that i was talking about something that could even any version of that could come to pass you know it was almost like the backstory. It was almost like an offhanded comment. I was like, "Right, right-wing militias rise up," and blah blah blah. You know, um, I didn't really actually think that was going to happen. So, DMZ is a a weird case for for me because 
I both want to say, oh, look at what you imagined. It's coming true in some form. But I also feel like that's obnoxious when writers do do that. Like I predicted the future, you know? So I don't know. It's, it's, I wish we weren't at this, this point. I wish DM, DMZ had stayed uh, a work of fantasy, <laughs> you know? Well, when Scott and I do something ahead of the loop, we brag about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> bragging is just not really in my nature. I get excited, <laughs> very uncomfortable about it. Um, but it's it's also funny because like years ago, when the Tea Party was was rising up, people were like, "Oh, it's DMZ," and then when the Occupy movement happened. They're like, oh, it's DMZ, but the but with the sides flipped, you know, it's happened a couple of times over over the years, um, where I get a bunch of emails or I do a bunch of interviews where I where the parallels get uh, pointed out to me. Um, what's happening now is like the most overt, I think. Yeah, I mean that was going to be my. I mean DMZ is where there's this civil war in the U.S. between right wing militias and the government in New York becomes this sort of like Baghdad-esque DMZ, right? And so, uh, I, mean, I mean, I don't think we're quite there yet for that part, but like, it, it does seem like the sort of concept is quite prescient. And do you think now they're making a HBO series out of it with uh, Ava DuVernay as the director yep. uh, who did Selma? And I'm, and I'm wondering like, did the impetus for that become an HBO series? Was that because of the the Trump era, or was it already were they already in the works on that? Because um, it, it seems like it's very timely. It does. It does. It's it's hard for me to say. DC and and when I mean DC, I mean like their TV division, like their media division, are they control the the media rights or the tv and film rights to to, to dmz and there have been so many opportunities over the years where they have turned down overtures like oliver stone in the not in the like a decade ago wanted to make a dmc movie and they said no amc has tried a couple of times and they say uh, say no and it's like they will they're willing to like bide their time until like the perfect thing comes comes along. And that's their choice. And I was not in the room when they decided that, okay, Ava DuVernay has interests. This is the the time we're going to to say say yes. I don't know what their reasoning was. Knowing how these things happen, it was at least a year, a year ago, you know, if not more. So it was definitely in the Trump years, but it was not, it, it would have been before like the, the election cycle, you know? Um, so I think they're probably can't believe their, their fortune that, you know, since they've like announced it and been working on it, it's more and more prescient, you know? Um, I'm sure that's like, you know, sort of like a bittersweet, thing you know for them i'm not super involved involved in that i just sort of make a choice because i'm working on another tv show off another one of my books and i sort of had to make a choice in terms of my time you know 
Um, and I knew that just because of the DM, DMZ with uh, Ava and, and the writer of that, who's uh, Robert Patino, who's like a Westworld writer. I knew that I would be a, in, in the passenger seat of that production, just because mm -hmm. of the, the personalities there and the identity, like the, the identity that Ava brings to everything she, uh, she does. I just, I opted to be in the driver's seat of this other project. Right. So um, it's you know. inter interesting. I, I did not, I never imagined a DMZ where there wasn't a journalist in the, in the role. So I'm actually curious. I've, I've read the pilot script, script of this and, and I like it, but I am curious to see if there will be future DMZs beyond this mini series where there, where there is a journalist there. Cause I think that's, that's, that's important. Well, no, you can probably tell this is not <clears throat> my wheelhouse. I've, I've never read a, a lot of graphic novels or comics. But, and, uh, and when I go to movies, I tend to watch comedies and political thrillers and stuff. But I've noticed in the last 10 years that, that these kinds of action movies based on, on comics have, I think, kind of taken over Hollywood. And my perception, which may be way off, is that they tend to be kind of liberatory movies you know, with kind of good guys who do good stuff about the environment and helping people. I, I may be wrong about that. Why, why is there, is this kind of drawn more toward younger people? I mean, are they kind of responding more to, to this rather than like, you know, boring history books written by professors? Or <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, obviously there's a huge chunk of comic book movies that are strictly superhero based. Um, yeah. And, and I don't you know consider if, that different than than, yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, the, the there are movies out there that are based on comics that might not even be evident to most most people. Okay. Like, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name, but Char Charlize Theron did a book where she's like a Berlin Cold War spy. I can't even like, like Atomic Blonde. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is based oh, on a graphic yeah. novel that had a different name, you know, and I bet most people didn't know that, you know. Um, there's the Umbrella Acad Academy on Netflix, which is like technically super superhero, but not really. It's much quirkier, you know. So I don't know if we're all like we meaning the non DC, non Marvel superhero guys who see themselves who see their books being adapted are just riding those coat the the coattails of those big student studio pictures or if there is somehow this separate um separate reasons for our, our stuff being like adapted you know um i do know that we get a lot of attention from producers I don't know if like novelists get the same same amount, but comics like um, like the comics I've done in the last half a decade, when they're announced, even before there's they're actually on the shelves, I'm getting emails from producers that want to grab the rights just to hold them. You know, they don't know what the book is. You know. Um, I don't know if they view us as low-hanging fruit or easy targets or cheap. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, we're not we're not upset about it. You know, it's nice. It's nice to be recognized after 
so long being ignored. <laughs> you know, um, uh, I saw talk, talking about the sort of like, I'm going to guess that in the comic world that DC and Marvel are the sort of like big corporate actors mm-hmm. in the room, the big gorillas in the room. Um, and I saw uh, the, I read that recent article about Marvel Comics Punisher and about how right-wing groups like the Proud Boys, various militias, um, a number of people involved in the Capitol riots oh, last week, you know, wear the wear the Punisher's insignia on their clothing and gear. And then I also saw where you, you tweeted about how you'd actually approach Marvel Comics about changing the image. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I... Um... I like the Punisher. I kind of always have, but it's uncomfortable (laughs) in recent years um, because that skull is so co-opted by kind of the worst elements of, I shouldn't say worst because I don't know who they are, but you know. They're pretty bad. We can agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the only reason why I'm, I'm pulling a punch there is because I have friends that are really into it, like ex-military guys that like have it painted on their cars and stuff. And yeah. I know that they're like a regular person. You know, they just really, like I said in my tweet, they kind of worship him. And it's true. Like there's a reverence for that character that doesn't, that I can't square in my own head. Like, I don't know why exactly, except that he's a, uh, guy who kicks ass but there's a lot of superheroes that uh, kick ass but somehow this guy is the guy you know and that that skull is the skull you know so i mean you see it in i see it in in my friends who are veterans at the gym i go to you see it in movies and like that sniper movie that bradley cooper was in american sniper you see it on the news and the ride or in cops and the rioters and everything you know you can like buy it in patches and everything. It's fully, fully co-opted. Um, in in mass mass-produced products, you know. So it's uncomfortable. And I was thinking about it, and especially after the Vegas shooting where that guy shot up, shot out of his hotel window, and the Punisher show was on TV, I was really i was thinking about like how is marvel going to deal with this like they still put out a punisher book and they used to put out a really problematic right right wing uh, punisher book like in recent years um and i i had done all this research on right wing militias and like i said i have these friends that dress up as the punisher you know on a, on a normal day, not Hall- Halloween, you know, um, have costumes and stuff. And I had done all this research for this, for this other project, project tech of mine. And I came, I stumbled across a way that I feel like Marvel could address this elephant in the room and not like dispel the use of that skull, but at least kind of like, if for no other reason, go on the record. Um, as, as them as a company and Frank Castle as the char- the character, sort of um, grappling with the fact that he is a mass shooter, like <laughs> you know, he is like a domestic terror terrorist. Um, real life has caught up to the fiction of that care that character, 
and I approach them awful. And I have to be careful with them because if you pitch anything to them, they own it immediately, even if they don't use it. So I, I had a couple of conversations where I described it kind of the way I'm describing it to you, like not actually giving plot points. Um, and they were like, no, we can't do that. No, 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 we're gonna, we're going this, this uh, the other way. He's gonna fight aliens or something. <laughs> you know, like completely, you know, we're gonna give him back his white gloves and boots, that old costume where he's not, doesn't look like a soldier. And he's gonna like deal with like intergalactic th threats or something. That that was their their way of dealing with it. Um, and then, you know, I tried again after a couple of years with like a different editor, and they said we just cannot do it. We can't do it. Never will. Period. Um, which is like, I mean, I understand that from I'm enough of a capitalist i guess to understand why they wouldn't want to to go that that route i'm sure it's like a minefield and there's always going to be somebody pissed off and they're going to get a lot of press for it so i understand why they're, they're just gun shy as a corporation um but it is a shame because i feel like this is a, a chance for them to you know to take a stand to say something if not positive, then then beneficial, you know. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious. Does so like particularly like Marvel with the Punisher when things like these mass shootings happen, like the Las Vegas shooting, do they do they have like a PR team that will spring into action? I mean, I, it's clearly it's not going to be like the NRA does, but like I could see them getting a lot of like feedback and backlash and even potential like hit profit hitting profit because they're up to align with like the violence in society or anything like that? I don't know. Um, they don't have a team that I've ever been in contact with. I mean, they have their own like PR teams that send out press press release and arrange interviews, but they don't, I, as far as I know, the book publishing side, side of Marvel does not have a crisis team. Yeah. It's possible the the media side, side does, um, yeah. but I don't know. That your first work, which is called Channel Zero, you know, focuses on a, a character named Jenny 2.5, who's a hacker who uses illegal television channel to urge viewers to fight back against New York, which I'm assuming you made during the Giuliani years. <laughs> yep. Uh, based on the Giuliani years, he's one of our, he's one of our, we're big fans of him on the Green Red podcast, <laughs> um, especially recently. And then America's Violent Theocracy. Uh, you wrote it in the mid nineties um, and thinking about like what has happened since the kind of mid to late nineties, like, and w when I read, when I read channel zero, which to be honest, I probably read it like 10 years ago. Uh, you know, it, it took me to like the WTO protests in Seattle and Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and more recently I, I could fit like the uprisings around Ferguson and Standing Rock Um and so I'm wondering if you would say a little bit about what was going on when you created it and what were events or ideas that you were specifically reacting to at the time? Well, you can tell by the way you described it that it's, it's dated. Right. <laughs> it's from, from the late nine, 90s. Um, so I got to put it into that, that context. I was a student. I, I went to art school here in New York City and... 
was reading like a lot of zines. I had grown up in a rural, you know, town in a apolitical envi environment. Um, knew nothing about anything in the world. And then, then I moved to New York City and went to art school. So I was getting like educated quick. And I was reading, reading a lot of zines. I was a bike messenger. I was going all over the city. I was like really sort of like taking in a lot of stimulus. Um, and uh, that book came out of, it started as a project in, in art school. Um, and I was not a writer, I was an art, artist then. And I sort of dashed off a story that I wanted to, like I knew what I wanted to draw. So I created a story that allowed me to do, do that. <laughs> and it was like, it was all about Giuliani's quality of life campaign, um, which was like driving artists from the streets and sort of like, you know, quote, cleaning up neighbor, neighborhoods, you know, everybody knows this, to make them more like real, real estate friendly. Um, there was like police pre presence in certain parts of the city that I would see as a messenger. It was right out of a lot of books I was, I was reading. I was taking a cyberpunk literature class in, in school, so I was reading all, all of that stuff. Ian uh, Gibson, that sort of stuff. Yeah, like yeah. that. I still have my copy of the Mirror, Mirror Shades anthology from, from then, which I just saw on, on Amazon is selling for like $100. So it's crazy. Um, and then more stuff that was more fun. Like I really remember the Max Hedrick TV show, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I couldn't find it then, you know, before the, before the, your ability to find that stuff on the inter internet so all this kind of came together and i basically made my own zine which was like the first version of this channel channel zero book that was all like super anti -Giuli giuliani like i grew up in a religious funda fundamentalist environment so like the religious fund fundamentalism of the country in the story was a, like that it's like I regurgitated everything onto these page pages that I was like passion, passionate about and later refined that into like a proper comic book that was very much about you know free, freedom of speech and you know sort of like street unrest you know but very much set in those times you know um, I often joke about how how different everything became after 9-11 because in Channel Zero, before that, the worst thing your government could could do to you is take take away your uh, freedom of speech, and mm -hmm. I feel like that's quaint now. It's like we wish, you know, you know, it's like pump that movie, pump up the vol volume. You know, the the kids just just, just want to dance to their music uh, during lunch period period, and the school won't won't let them. You know, and now it's like drone drone strikes. <laughs> that's the, that's kind of where we've gone you know um shooter shooter drills yeah exactly um but that's where it came from and that was really like that was i was not part of the comic book industry i wasn't do making something that i was going to try to sell to be published it was really just like a personal sort of art students rant um that i later somehow was able to to sell to image comics 
you know, and make into like a book. Um, yeah, yeah, that was like 25 years ago. Yeah. And, and it, it was the foundation of like everything that came before. I mean, DMZ really built off of that. You know? Right. Yeah, I, I felt like there were like the Ginny 2.5 is very similar to the character in DMZ. And, and when I read them, because I once I once I picked up, I, I think I, my brother had turned me on to DMZ first. And once I read that, then I started reading a, a bunch of your other stuff. Yeah. So, Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash greenredpodcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Thank you. Share everything too. And uh, tell your friends. Um, speaking of some of your other stuff, there's the one which is, uh, I would say is going to be nearest and dearest to the world I come out of, which is like the world of environmental direct action and organizing. And like I was saying before, you know, before we started recording, I've worked with Greenpeace quite a lot and Earth First and many other radical environmental groups. So I'm a big fan of the massive. And so could you actually start off just explaining a little bit to the audience about the massive for those who aren't as familiar with it? Yeah, um, it's a uh, long-running series about like green Greenpeace type or sea or Sea Shepherd type of environmentalist on ships, and um, this sort of cat cataclysmic environmental event happens um, and sort of like tosses the world into chaos, like a like a Roland Emmerich film. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like how they sort of deal with like the data day-to-day issues that like arise from like a world that's literally falling falling apart, literally falling apart. And also reconciling their like environmental views. Like what do we do now? Like the worst events happened. Like what's our mission now? You know, we we can't warn anybody about this anymore. It's happened. So uh, so now 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 what? And there's also like a lot of uh, storylines about the characters themselves and their previous lives as having, you know, di directly or indirectly participated in quote ba bad stuff that kind of helped fuel the destruction of the of the world. Mm -hmm. I came up with it when I was winding down with DMZ and I but this point like I like I said before I had sort of like decided my my identity or at least my dominant identity in the comics industry was the guy that does books about this kind of stuff I'd done channel channel zero then I'd done done DMZ and uh envi environmentalism was something I was also passionate about so that was why I landed on that topic did making it shape or reshape any of your views on the environment um, or climate change? Making it in the sense of doing the research for it did. Like, like I said before, all I do is, is read. Um, I read dozens of books or parts of dozens of books, I should, should say. And it was like upsetting. <laughs> you know, you, you, you kind of think you know 
about stuff, you know, and the, the stuff that, but you don't really, like a lot of the, the books that really kind of chilled me to my core was like, not about environmental issues that I might come, come, come across living in a first world country, but the stuff that's happening right now to the third, third world, you know, um, it was, it was upsetting. It was, and, and I, again, you're sort of left with this situation where you're trying to write like an action adventure comic because that's what the pub, the publisher is expecting. And you gotta kind of got to fold in your, your ideas into that, you know, kind of walk that line. So I, I'm, I'm happy with the massive, but it was definitely, I'm sure I have another book in me. <laughs> that's a little more you know aggressive um, right and sort of like talking about these uh, these issues um i i just had my second kid around that time and i was like what what have i done you know why have i put them into this world so it was it was like a it was a so sobering book to write for for sure i'm kind of i'm kind of curious are there any are there any uh plans to turn the massive into something more live action yeah i've had several conversations i also wrote a, a pilot script um that didn't go and go anywhere it's oh god i've had so so many conversations about it that all go the exact same way <laughs> is everybody looks at the massive and the massive has like scenes of like burning oil rigs and flooded cities. And they're like, we can't film, film this. Like it's literally insanely expensive to put what you've done in the comic onto the screen. So here's, here's what we want to do. And they pitch me the, the day after tomorrow or 2012. It's like a disaster movie. And I, you know, like, like all the ones you've ever seen. Um, and I- Starring The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that would actually tempt me. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of that guy. Um, but I had deliberately done the massive, like I started the the book with the disaster already, like the big one already happened, so as to avoid the whole pre the whole everything that that comes before it like the cli the clichés of the scientist warning everybody and nobody listens you know all the debate about whether climate change is real or or not like i wanted to like skip all that shit right um so i started the book off i'm like there there is no debate it's like happening it's happening like right now page 1 um and everybody wanted to do the stuff that I avoided, you know, the, the politicians arguing, the scientists warning, you know, the birds falling, like the early signs, all that stuff. And I just don't care about that. Like I've seen that, you know, um, and it wasn't the point, like I'm, I'm exhausted by the argument of whether or not this is happening or to what extent, you know. So um, I come back at you know, producers, and I say, no, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Here's a way to make it cheaper. You know, here's a way to to narrow the scope a bit, you know? And like I said, I sold it to a company. They hired me to write the pilot, and then the company ran out of money. 
and they gave the rights back to me. Mm. So now I'm sort of like, you know, pitching it around again, having these same conversations again. Um, I believe there's a, um, there's, there's interest in it. I mean, it's like a topical thing and people are passionate about it, even in an armchair kind of way. Um, so it's just kind of a question of, of talking to like the right person who sees it a certain way and we can find some kind of common, common ground. I'd be curious what the, if you, what kind of response you've gotten from like the, you know, environmental world, like the, the activists and the nonprofits, if you've, if you've gotten any. It's not, honestly, not a lot. Like without giving away the story of the book to anybody who hasn't read it, there's a, there's a sci-fi element to the story that polarizes a lot of people. I feel like a lot of the, like I've gotten, I, I, I can't call it like like hate hate mail, but I've gotten like emails from random people who I, I don't know if they are who they say they are for real, but they identify themselves as like it's like hardcore environmentalist activists, you know, um, tree tree spikers and stuff. They're notoriously who, cranky people, so I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> who just give me kind of a little bit of shit for not being tougher for not writing the manual or whatever the screed that they want to read. And I get it. Like I said, I'm, I'm operating in a, in a commercial space. I have to sort of appeal to, you know, everybody. I can't alienate. I mean, as much fun and as much enjoyment I would have is to write like a really angry sort of hyper indie comic about it you know, I, that's not gonna pay my rent, unfortunately. So I understood where they're coming coming from. I, def, I stand by the book, like I did do something that had a, like a lot of creation mythology folded into it. Um, but that's the uh, comic, you know, and like when I wrote this screenplay, I've tried to, like I have all those emails in my head and ditched all that sci-fi element and wrote like a straight screenplay of uh you know that kind of like was a little more aggressive you know sort of like identified the bad bad guys in a more overt way um so i think the both things can can exist and i really that's the direction i would continue to keep pushing for for like a film or a or a tv show i'm, I'm a history professor and about I don't know, a while ago, over 10 years ago, I had a grad student do his dissertation on military comics. Best known would be like Bill Malden, but but there were others. And yeah. um, I never realized they served as a really important outlet because soldiers can't really complain and bitch. You know, they might get court-martialed. So <laughs> these comics became really important to them. And then I think, you know, um, not so much anymore because my students are younger, but for years... I would invoke Homer Simpson or some episode of The Simpsons in almost every class. And I always had the sense that because they were dealing with, you know, not real figures, you could get away with, I think The Simpsons is the most subversive thing I've ever seen on TV. Um, when you're writing, do you feel that like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of inventing this character so I can kind of go places where a real person per se wouldn't go? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of, 
you really hit on what I think is like the best thing about comics is that not a lot of people pay attention to them. <laughs> and the stakes are, are small, meaning it's not a, a investment of $50 million for like a movie. It's an investment of like 10, 10 grand, you know, to like make this, this thing. And you really can, like, if you're willing to, a writer or an artist can really push the envelope and get away, away with stuff. And I think that's one of the seductive qualities, like why someone who makes comics will keep making comics, even if there's more lucrative, you know, jobs out there or more ways to, to get a bigger audience because, because there is so much freedom and whatever we write almost always in 99.9% of cases is what ends up on the, sh on the shelf. Like we're not getting re rewritten by editors or guys in suits aren't telling us to like tone it down or whatever. Um, so that's the beauty of the comics. You know, I always try to be, I'm an incredibly practical and prag pragmatic person. So I really try to find I want to make everybody happy. I want everything to work work right. So I've always tried to walk that that line between doing what I really want to do if I didn't if I was a billionaire and didn't have to worry about anything and doing what I believe is is uh, expected on the commercial side. But I know that if I was working straight in TV um, because I do, <laughs> or for like, if I had a big novel deal at a Harper Collins or something, I would have to skew way, way more towards the commercial side. I have, I have like two more questions unless Bob has anything else. I, my first question I would say is in the current sort of supercharged partisan atmosphere, do you think comics are saying enough about social and political issues? I, enough, um, no, I will, I'll elaborate by saying that I think a lot of people try and I think they either, I think the bigger names need to try harder. There's, there's a plenty of sort of radical comics out there in the lowest level of awareness, but the bigger title of titles, if they go there at all, it's in a most surface performative way for like a moment and then they're done, you know? Right. Like here's a scene when Batman is gonna make some crack about how he's, uh, he's part of the one, the 1% and they make that line and then that's it, <laughs> you know? And it, I would love to read a whole book about how Batman's one of the one, the one percent, you know? And it's like, sure, that, that'd be cool, and, but it's never going to happen. Because the billionaire that dresses up like a bat and goes out and beats up poor people at night, that sort of thing. Exactly, or, you know, Tony, I mean, they, they, they have made an, an effort to point out how Tony Stark is like a weapons manufacturer. Right. But, they do it, but it seems cool when it's Robert Downey Jr. Though I'll say, yeah, yeah, it's he's it's it's the most charming weapons manufacturer you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, 
So I don't expect Batman to change or the Avengers to uh, change, but I just feel like people could like push it more if only in that middle middle realm, you know? Um, it's, and it's easy for, for me to say, um, and I know it's not as simple as just wanting to, because I've been there, you know, like I'm, I've supported a family making comics and you have to do a lot of crap, you know, to pay the bills for every, like, for every massive I've written all kinds of weird shit, you know, uh, licensed books, Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars is cool, but you know, I have to take a lot of jobs to be able to take the risk and the likely financial hit that something like the massive, which has a shelf life of decades, most likely, but in the moment was not selling in great numbers, you know, on a month to month, month based basis. So I wasn't getting paid as, paid as much. So like I said, easy for me to say, there's a, the structure of comics kind of works against it. But like, I know plenty of guys who feel, feel the same way I do, but in terms of what the kind of books they write or draw, they make what they know is gonna appeal to like, make the most people happy, you know? And that kind of bum, bums me out a bit. Yeah. Uh, and then my, my final question is just like, you know, you actually talked about maybe having another book in you, but like, I'm kind of curious what's next. A lot of things are, are next. I, like you said before, or I said, I've done comics for almost 25 years and I'm kind of comicsed out, to be honest with you. No, no. I, sh I shouldn't say that. I'm, I want to do other stuff in, in my life, you know? So I'm, I was never one of those comic book guys from birth that just have it in their blood and will love it forever. And that's all they, they want to do, you know? Um, I want to write novels and keep working in TV and figure that out. And I'm interested in, in building my game writing portfolio as well so i'm sort of like paused on the comics i signed one book deal and i'm writing that that now um sold one of my books for tv which has hasn't been uh, announced yet uh again with the corporate side of that i have to listen to them um and i just want to sort of I want to do what I've done. I'm not making a radical departure from the themes that I, that I care about, but I just want to try to stretch, try to exercise different muscles. I'm going back to making art again too, which is kind of something I haven't done, like you know, paintings. You know, something I haven't done in a long time. That's great. You hear that that noise? I'm sorry about that. There's hey. construction out the out of my window. Uh, it's all good yeah uh we're a we're a home we're like a, a very uh, uh grassroots sort of podcast so gotcha. got all kinds of stuff like that going on folks you've been listening to brian wood comic creator writer uh created such titles as uh channel zero the massive dmz which is going to be an hbo series soon 
as well as like many other projects. He's a video game designer. Uh, Brian, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Um, that was fun. Folks, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can go to our YouTube page and become a YouTube subscriber. And then if you want to be a uh, donor, you can go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button, or you can become a patron and become a recurring donor and go to our Patreon page at patreon.com.org backslash greenredpodcast. And it's been great talking today and been excited to have Brian on. Been ready, excited for this interview for a couple of weeks. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Thanks.